HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, New American Cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. How do you do? Today is Monday. It's noon and it's time for What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Except today we're not going to talk about food, but we are going to talk about the climate. And we're going to be talking about it with Mackenzie Funk. Um, Mackenzie is the author of the newly released Windfall, The Booming Business of Global Warming. And I got to tell you, this is what we call a page turner. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It was incredibly engagingly well written. Uh, It was funny, believe it or not, scary as hell, and just so comprehensive and explained so much to me about what is going on in the world vis-a-vis climate change. Um, I cannot recommend it enough. Mackenzie has also written for Harper's National Geographic, Outside, Rolling Stone, Bloomberg's Business Week, and the New York Times. He is one of the founding members of the journalism collective DECA. I hope I'm saying that right. And since 2000, his reporting has taken him all over the United States and to dozens of countries on six continents. A National Magazine of Award finalist and a former Knight Wallace Fellow. He won the Oaks Prize for Environmental Journalism for a story about the melting Arctic. I bet that was the beginning of this book. And was a finalist for the Livingston Award for Young Journalists for his interview in Tajikistan with one of the first prisoners released from Guantanamo Bay. Welcome to the program, Mackenzie. Thank you so much for joining me and thanks so much for writing this great book. Well, thank you for actually reading it, Rarity, (laughs) and thanks for having me. (laughs) Are you telling me that other radio hosts do not read the book? Uh, I'll let you say that yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I actually heard one of your interviews. I think it was uh, it was on uh, maybe, well, it was on National Public Radio. I can't remember what show it was, but um, the uh, the uh, radio host. It was a guy, and he kept trying to sort of draw you into saying that you know all of these people who might profit from. you know the various uh, things that are we are going to discuss in a minute about what climate change is bringing about. We're you know the bad guys and we're the good guys, and it was just like clear that you just did not want to go there. <laughs> and 
<laughs> and, you know, it was just like the guy just kept pushing and pushing. It was really funny to me because what he really should have been doing is what I hope to do now, which is to draw you out about, I mean, there is an incredible amount of opportunity here. And as you say at the end of the book, um, and I'm sorry to go on for so long, but I was just, I had so much to say about this. Um, as you say at the end of the book, it's like, you know, we can pretend that nothing is happening. <laughs> which is what we've been doing. Um, we can pretend that there's no money to make. We can pretend all kinds of things. But the reality is that this is already happening to us. Climate change is already a major reality for many parts of the world. And, uh, you know, it's going to take a long time to reverse that process. And personally speaking, I agree with you. I don't think that's going to happen. So, and the other thing <laughs> I wanted to ask you was this, your timing could not be better. This came out in January, right? It did, yeah. So did you see the coverage last night? Like Kerry was lecture, John Kerry, our Secretary of State, who, mm-hmm. by the way, also has uh, the vote on uh, Keystone Pipeline. Um, but he uh, he was lecturing Indonesia about climate change <laughs> as they're sinking into the sea. And then Obama had a big you know speech about it. And then also three of the Sunday pundit shows, which I never watched, but I happened to catch this on the news, um, were all talking about climate change, which is very unusual for them. They usually stay away from topics that might actually have an impact on their advertisers and um they had still they had one interview i think it was on meet the press with marcia blackburn did you see that or did no, you see no, coverage no. of that marcia blackburn i forget where she's from i think iowa or something but she's she is still denying a climate change she still says there's no consensus um you know the studies are not accurate you know it was unbelievable and even the host uh david gregory had to stop her and say yeah no actually I'm sorry, there is consensus. But anyway, um, but you know, I wonder if like the Republicans actually recognize that this was a global security threat. Uh, they might be more interested in passing some sort of climate legislation instead of just seeing it as a way to, um, you know, cap and trade and all the other old type of uh, mechanisms that have been bandied around for decades now about how to uh, deal with emissions and greenhouse gases. So yeah, let's let's certainly get... you know when John when John McCain was talking a lot about climate change, that was one of his things was the security impacts of climate change and you know what what could this do for refugee issues? Is you know, oh my god, it's the huge! Policemen, you know what are we right? What are we well, we're, uh, we're, we're going to talk about the refugee issue in a minute, but um, I wanted to just get started with, like, did this, arc, did this book actually come out of the article that you wrote about uh, the melting uh, Arctic ice cap? Yeah, you did. You did right. Uh-huh. I was sent by Harper's Magazine to do a story in 2006 and 2007 to the, to the Northwest Passage, and that's the, you know, the shipping route that goes across right. the top of North America. You know, people looked for it for centuries, yes. and they finally found it. It was frozen. And and what was happening then, in fact, for the first time on, on satellite record in 2007, was that the ice was melting and ships could get through. So for this and various other reasons, Canada said, we're going to go stake our claim on that. <clears throat> we're going to go prove that this is Canadian waters, that this is our territory. And so they sent, you know, they sent warships and soldiers up yeah. into the opening of the Northwest Passage. And I was I was on board as a... As a journalist, we did all sorts of weird things like invade islands and, and chase fake American boats through the water. And, yeah, it was and, actually very you know, funny. <laughs> yeah. I, I really, it was a great way to start the book because it really was humorous <clears throat> and um, and just kind of surreal. It was like a very sort of Dr. Strange Lovian scene in, in which you know, like boatloads of tourists would get off. <laughs> Get on yeah, their cruise was, ships and like you know, and then there's all these Canadian guys with their guns and everything. I mean, it was just 
really a funny picture. Well, and that was, you know, the, what attracted me to that story, honestly, it was not, I was not particularly interested in climate change when I started doing this. I thought huh. it was, you know, like like a lot of people, I thought, oh, okay, this is sort of slow-moving, it's about cap and trade and these boring things, and, you know, what, as a as a magazine writer, what, what is there to really sink one's teeth into? Right. And so I was I was amused by the fact that Canadians are up there with guns, because that's not the first thing you think of and why they're doing it. It's just bad behavior by Canadians. It's an endlessly good topic. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> and so it was just, you know, it was just by chance. I started thinking, well, what are, why are they here? What are they doing? What, what's going on here? And then it's this sort of opportunism when it comes to climate change. And that, that struck me. And for the first time, I was like, oh, this is really a very human story. This actually is a much, you know, the biggest thing humans have ever done. And then, it's, you know, here we are sort of reflected in our response to it. Interesting. Well, what you point out, uh, in, especially in that opening chapters, is that um, you know the rev- the uh, the Northwest Passage, pa- uh, the Northwest Passage. God, I'm so sorry, I'm having like a stuttering problem. <laughs> the Northwest Passage represents an opportunity for increased shipping, and then there's also all of the minerals. There's all of the oil that can be harvested, and uh, now that the water is not frozen. Um, and people can do offshore drilling much more easily. There's a lot of, and that's what the Canadians are so interested in protecting. Am I right? You're right. And, and there's there's the matter of national pride. So basically, the Northwest Passage, uh, Canada believes these are internal waters. Much of the rest of the world, including the United States, says no. This this is some sort of strait, like uh, uh-huh. Gibraltar or Malacca. We should be able to send our ships through there whenever we want, and, and not so, pay anything, and not pay anything, and not even ask for permission. Right. At a base level, I think Canadians would like American permission when we do things in general. And uh, and this is one of them on, on what they consider sovereign territory. Mm-hmm. But you're right that the the maybe bigger prize would be oil and gas up in the Arctic. And that's, you know, at one point was 22% of the world's undiscovered oil and gas were thought to be in the Arctic. That's changed a bit with fracking. So there's, you know, the big, it's a smaller percentage of gas now. But it's still something like 13% of the world's undiscovered oil. And in a world when we've gotten all the easy oil everywhere else, this is a, a huge prize. And as the ice pulls back, it's easier to you know, map. It's easier to do seismic work for exploration. It's easier to do the drilling. If there's a spill, it's easier to clean up. Right. It's just yeah, easier to get to market. Yeah, absolutely. All of those things. So that's one aspect of global warming that uh, is a... I mean, really, this whole story is is one about capitalizing on calamity, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it is, and yeah. that's I think that's a very interesting, you know. It, I mean, I I wish we had like much more time, but anyway. So mm-hmm. um, let's let's just quickly like I just want to go through the chapters quickly because you have like melt, you have drought. I mean, can we just like say what you did in the book and and why you chose those or what you sure. know what those represent? Well, yeah, as I said I went to the <clears throat> I went to the Arctic first and. And the Arctic not only was where I happened to go first, it's also where you can sort of see the impacts of climate change happening now. You know, right. it's warming at twice the rate of the rest of the planet. And so I looked at, I looked at melt in general, melting uh, ice caps and melting glaciers and melting, melting land ice in Greenland and just sort of thought, okay, how are people reacting to this in a, in a sort of opportunistic way? How are they not thinking, how can I stop this climate change, but how can I deal with this one part of it and then flowing naturally from that i don't mean that pun was <laughs> was a uh, you know drought and water i mean one of the best one of the natural ways that water is stored everywhere in the world is in glaciers and right and so a lot of the 
the drought right now in the American West, some of that's attributed to the fact that you know, there's less glacial ice and less snowfields at the top of the Colorado River system and, and in the Sierra Nevada to hold the water. Right. And so it, <clears throat> I started looking at, you know, the basics, what happens when there's less water, when it's drier. And so that got me into water rights and private firefighting as firefighters become more widespread. People buying up farmland as food is hard to hard to grow when it's too dry. Yeah. And um, the project <clears throat> the project in Senegal and the rest of Africa to build a, a wall of trees across the across the Sahel. That that was just one the side most, of Africa to the other. That's that's almost made me cry. I yeah. mean, the idea that people are, are investing all this time and energy into putting in a wall of trees, which probably will not survive because of the mm-hmm. drought, <laughs> um, right. and it's uh, you know hundreds and hundreds of miles, if not thousands, all the way across Africa at some point, right? And yeah. um, and they were planting seedlings that you described as eight inches tall, and I just yeah. was like, oh my god, this will never happen. Yeah, I mean, they would dig these dig these trenches and then put the seedling in and you just sort of see the, the nub of it poking over the edge of the trench and then oh. they pour some water and move on. Oh my God. I mean, okay. So let's go back to, um, in uh, 2007, you report that the U.S. government and its various agencies, uh, including like uh, various spy agencies, which I thought was really interesting. I, the whole sort of global security thing was one of the most interesting parts of the book to me. Um, and its various agencies have been investigating the impact of climate change. Why do you think in that case that the government has been <clears throat> so slow and even negligent in uh, pushing toward any kind of climate change agenda or climate remediation agenda? Yeah, well... That's just entrenched interests. Yeah. We all know that. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm yeah. my cough here. We, we all, know, we all know the nature of our government at the moment, but so there, there are obviously the intrinsic things to the way our country is run right now that make it impossible to do. Anything well, do you about think that? Anything. Do you think that these but, recent, uh, you know, outspoken moments uh, by John Kerry and by President Obama about climate change and how it's like a weapon of mass destruction, do you think that that signals a change in the attitude of the government and that they might actually start investing money in this or something? Or is that just I, I think once it does. again and in fact service? they are. No, I, I think it does, it does signify a change in attitude. And obviously it goes along with, with Obama's change in attitude in general about working things through, through right. Congress as opposed to executive action. And so a lot of what they're looking at doing now, as, as Obama's time slowly winds up, is these executive actions they can just do unilaterally. Right. So I think in terms of actually that kind of stuff, they might, they might do a lot more. You know, they've just started a billion-dollar fund to help uh, places like California adapt to climate change and sort of understand what impacts are happening locally. Right. They've got these new sort of agriculture centers to help help agriculture adapt. And so there's a lot of that that... Is happening, but anything on a on an international level about I mean that's all that's all dealing with the planet we're creating. The the stuff that is still not really happening is say a, a cap and trade or climate uh, carbon tax that would have to go through Congress or right. or uh, of course an international agreement like hasn't happened for six years running. Right, there's UN climate conferences that you know to be fair the U.S. isn't the biggest bad guy there necessarily anymore oh no but china nobody, far exceeds uh, the united states if i'm not mistaken in in uh, greenhouse gas emissions no in, in emissions yeah but i mean in terms of negotiations oh i see and, yeah, right. and one important point about china's admission emissions are that of course 
we all know from globalization that they're also building everything for us. So, so the fact that they're officially emitting more than we are doesn't mean that the consumption that drives the factories that, that emits all that stuff is theirs. Actually, it's still mostly ours. Oh, I see. Right, right. In other words, they're building. Okay, yeah, you're right. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, I wanted to um, actually what I want to do now, unfortunately, is take a 30 second sponsor drop. (laughs) (laughs) But stay with us, folks, uh, for more with Mackenzie Funk on uh, his fantastic new book, Windfall, The Booming Business of uh, Climate Change. And we'll be right back. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. On the phone with me is Mackenzie Funk, the author of, and I stated his title incorrectly, uh, the author of Windfall, The Booming Business of Global Warming. Um, once again, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, Mac, let's talk about um, one of the things that I really uh, think is a really interesting problem and a really naughty conundrum, and that is the acquisition of water rights and trading on that in uh, hedge funds on Wall Street etc. Who are some of the biggest players in this uh, sort of putting together these hedge funds that are and who is acquiring these water rights? Well, there's a there's a small group of them that are Wall Street firms. The biggest one that I talked to is actually based in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And they're not they're not that big. And the reason is that it's kind of hard to buy water rights. It's, first of all, you can only do it on one side of this country. You can only do it in the West. You right. can do it in places like Australia. And you have to go around to basically individual ranchers and say, hey, mind if I buy your water rights? And so it's a pretty specialized thing. So a lot of, you'll see a lot of huge funds are invested in water in general. And that can mean everything from efficiency stuff to water utilities, all of which are regulated. The act of actually buying water rights and controlling the water rights is uh, a select few. And, and the process is, is as I you basically go around, you can separate the water title from the land title, and then you either sit on it or bundle it and sell it to a boomtown downstream, uh-huh. all these things. And this is happening up and down the Colorado River system. There are a couple of private groups that, that are building you know, private, private aquifers, basically. They're yeah. trying to recharge aquifers with water they've collected elsewhere, then they'll sell them in times of drought, like right now, to local agencies. The uh, some of these same funds operate also in Australia, as I mentioned, uh-huh. and there it's there it's even more interesting because they're buying up the water rights from these ranchers, and then often they're leasing the water rights back to those same ranchers. Getting a, they're getting some money in right then, and at the same time they're sort of seeing the, the asset, as it were, the underlying asset, which is the water right, right, gain in value as as droughts get worse. Oh, I I mean this uh, to me it's the scariest thing in the world. The idea that some corporate entity is going to purchase, you know, large aquifers essentially, and then parcel them out to the highest bidder. I mean, I, you know, I, I think there is something fundamentally wrong about that. But I don't know yeah, how. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of people do. And the 
fair to the the hedge fund managers I talk to, they see their role as something very different. They would say that you know that these towns are going to get water; they're growing. They can't actually add homes if they don't have water. Yeah. And meanwhile, these these ranchers don't have sons who want to work the ranches, so we're just serving as the sort of intermediary to get the water from where it is to where it needs to go. Now, um, there has been a pushback in Australia, of course, to to some of this stuff, mm-hmm. and 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 even there, though, the biggest buyer is the Australian government. The drought was getting so bad on the Murray Darling River. Million Darling River system in Australia, that the government needed to buy water just to get enough water to flow all the way to the end, all the way to the ocean. Wow! Because you can imagine it's what they call transport flow. Uh-huh. When it gets so bad, when when the water levels get so bad, it doesn't have enough water to carry it from you know one pool to the next. It just sort of sits in pools. Yeah. So you've got to get enough water to actually have a river flow. And so to have that bare minimum, the government was going around and buying itself buying water from the ranchers, and that's that's it different case there was a, a stock market of water rights there in in uh, adelaide at the end of the murray darling system where you could walk in and they have all these guys on computer screens and they're they've got exchange rates basically between different parts of the river system Jiminy. and they're and yeah you can go in and, and buy your megaliters right there that's it's incredible remarkable. it is you'll be happy to hear that it's not it's not widespread in the world yet and it may never be just because of the because of the obscurities of water law, which I will not bore you with at the moment. <laughs> but it's happening in some, some important agricultural reasons. Region. And, well, I wa- and China, China and Spain have looked at water trading as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, the Spanish have been suffering terribly from drought, as far as I know. Um, but I want to yeah. talk about some of the technologies that you investigated, because we don't have a lot of time left on the show. And you had some like really amazing... Uh, stories to tell about, you know, desalinization, about making snow, about geoengineering, which blew my mind, seeding clouds, uh, spewing sulfuric acid up into the atmosphere in order to cause rainfall. Can you take us through some of those uh, extraordinary measures, but which will probably become ordinary in very short order? <laughs> well, we'll, see. well, desalination, that, that absolutely is ordinary at this point. Oh yeah, the company it's I've, expensive. The company though. I visited has built something like 400 plants. They're called Israel Desalination Enterprises, and they they build these giant reverse osmosis plants. And basically, anywhere that's rich and is dry has mm-hmm. these now. I mean, obviously, California is getting them all up and down the east of China, Spain, uh, Australia, every major city in Australia. So, desalination at the moment is. It's a strange technology in that it takes so much energy to produce this water. Yeah. And and it therefore emits so much carbon generally that it that it's one of these solutions that great, if you don't have any water and you're you're rich enough to pay for one of these very expensive plants and the energy into it, you can turn the sea into drinking water. And I think that's that's what's helping keep Israel alive. At the same time, you're emitting so much carbon that I suppose long term you're not you're not helping someone else who can't afford this this kind of technology. And that's that's sort of what I saw across the board with these, these tech fixes. Is that they're sure. not they're not bad necessarily if you're the guy who's using it. But they're generally expensive and they're generally one sided. It's not for everybody. You know, cutting 
cutting carbon emissions is for everybody. That's very democratic. Right. But building but, a seawall or a pair of gates across yeah. the Verrazano Straits, yeah. they won't be able to do that. They won't be able to circle an island in the, you know, Micronesia to keep it from being inundated. And that, exactly. and that to me was actually the really, the fundamental point of the book uh, really was about the divide between the rich and the poor. So the rich yeah. companies are going to, I mean, the rich countries, I should say, are going to survive climate change more or less intact, it seems like. Whereas anything below the equator that doesn't have money is basically can kiss their ass goodbye, right? Yeah, and I, I think that's, that's generally fair. I mean, there's, there's the question <laughs> of time scale. The, yeah. uh, obviously, at a certain, let climate change go on long enough and keep on emitting carbon and don't cut anything, and it's going to be very bad for everyone soon. And even in this country, obviously places are going to do very badly with climate change, so I don't think we should entirely sugarcoat the effects. But in general, yeah, the rich are the ones who will get richer or at least better protect themselves from these effects, and the poor, by and large, will only get poorer uh, from climate change. And another, you mentioned geoengineering, and I can try to quickly explain what that is and, and why people want to do it. And it's basically... It's that, that six-degree scenario. It is if we were to let emissions just keep on going, it would be so bad for everyone in the world, including including me in Seattle and you in Brooklyn, that 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 people say, well, we've got to reverse this somehow. And one way is to mimic a volcano. Volcanoes have shown over the centuries, you spew a bunch of sulfur up into the sky, mm-hmm. it clouds it, and global temperatures go down. And there's it's not it's not very difficult science. So. So people say, well, how can we do this artificially? And they think rockets, 747s, uh, weird tubes that will launch tons of sulfur up in, in the sky. Yeah. Maybe do sort of a do sort of a a cap over the bald Arctic. All these all these ideas. And I uh, I interviewed uh, Nathan Mirvold, who's the former futurist for Bill Gates. He's He's been a guest on this show for our uh, our fantastic Dave Arnold and friends. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was fun to read yeah, that chapter that, he did about that him. Page, he did that thousand page cookbook. Yeah, yeah. I, Very interesting. When I guy. talked to him, he was he was cooking. Yeah, he's a, he's a, an actual genius. Yeah, and he has a company in Seattle area that that is uh, known for patenting lots and lots of things, and then extracting payments of some sort, usually not by lawsuit but by license. Uh-huh. For those who want to use those patents, and one of the things they've patented is geoengineering, this technique to to shoot sulfur into the sky and mimic a volcano. And you look deep into what this could do, and some models—it's early—but an increasing amount of science is saying, okay, geoengineering will work if if you think of global warming as warming, if you want to get the temperature back to what it was. But if you think of global warming as climate change. And you think about the other effects, you know, the changing rainfall pattern, uh-huh. the, um, the, place, the fact that places get dry gets drier and wet gets wetter. Then geoengineering is not a fix at all because these these models show that the rainfall patterns in the Sahel in Africa or across the monsoon in India and Bangladesh, you know, places I visited for the book, they are going to just get knocked out. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll get wiped out. And so the same people who would be damaged by climate change without geoengineering would get it in a geoengineered world. It would just protect sort of the likes of you and me. Right. And so that's, you know, I should say that the science is preliminary. Some of the scientists who come up with these designs are the ones coming up with these things saying, well, look, this is a lopsided technology. But you have to ask if you're, if it's the U.S. developing it and our fingers on the temperature dial, what are we going to choose? Sure. 
again, again, not entirely a democratic technology. Uh, certainly not. And um, let's wrap this up uh, because I, one of the things that, I mean, after I finished reading the book and I read all of the many businesses that you describe as potentially thriving on climate change, mm-hmm. um, but none of them included what we all think of now as alternative energy. There was no massive like solar uh, exploration. There was no, um, you know, harnessing the waves or wind energy farms or, you know, like those are those technologies already outdated. They're not worth pursuing. There's, I mean, I'm just curious why no, there isn't uh, yeah, more no. investment capital going into those already known technologies. Uh, no, not at all. And I actually, I should, it's a very good question because I should be clear that more money is going toward this kind of stuff, uh, toward these green technologies. Uh-huh then is going toward sort of bets on failure, like what I cover in the book. So, you know, even when I looked at the, the climate fund by Deutsche Bank and a couple of similar climate funds, that, that, you know, they're basically, on one hand, they're doing these green technologies, they're, they're climate change funds, of course they're going to invest in all this. And on the other hand, they're sort of hedging their bets, saying we've warmed the earth so much that this is, this is going to happen. We need to invest in the seawall builders or the insurance companies or, or whomever. And so they, they're playing both sides. Yeah. And so I, um, you know, why did I not include solar and all the other stuff in the book? It's because others have done it very well, and and I prefer mm-hmm. to focus on that are new and make people very uncomfortable. <laughs> that, you know, I think the fact that people are going to make money one way or another says a lot more about us, and it says a lot more about climate change than does another look at the potential technologies, you know, solar energy or all this that could help us. Because that's the thing. People think once we believe in climate change, once we stop denying it as a country, and once everyone's sort of on board, then automatically we're going to go green. We're going to do all these things. And I think it's very important for people to understand, understand that we aren't going to do that. That's not human nature, and it's certainly not capitalism nature. Yeah, and I agree. We, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, nobody is going to be, uh, you know, nobody people don't even want to turn their hoses off they still want to have a lawn you know yeah. i mean you know stuff like that i i mean i like to garden i i live in the country some of the time and i i got rid of my lawn <laughs> cuz yeah. like i'm not going to waste water on that and i live in the northeast where we don't have as much of a problem. So anyway, we have to unfortunately wrap this up. You've been a great interview. I hope you'll come back and talk to us again uh, more about this book. We barely covered Scratch the Service. We didn't get to talk about insurance companies. We didn't get to talk about um, immigrant labor and law of the sea and all of that stuff. But anyway, I think we did a good job of, of getting the main point across. Um, so you have a website. Why don't you tell people what it is? Sure, it is windfall hyphen book or my name mckenziefunk.com good luck spelling the letter no <laughs> no a between the m and the c right that. and no e at the end of funk <laughs> that's, that's good. There. and um are you giving any talks in the are you traveling around are you on book tour what's happening with yeah that? i'm actually going i'm flying to uh to dallas later today and then on to st louis and then eventually i'll be in new york great so Hey, call me when you're in New York. I'd love to meet. I will. That'd be great. Right. Maybe you well, can come you back. That. Yeah, maybe we can bring you back for All another right. for another talk. Thanks again to That'd my sponsor. Thank you, Mac, for joining me today. Thank and thanks to um, my engineer, as always. See you next week. We're going to... Oh, oh, one more thing. People, I have a Facebook page. It's called What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights with Katie Kiefer. 
please check it out because I post a lot of content on there. I put articles up that I think are interesting. I put the links up to these shows. Um, so if you're listening uh, and you want to just check in and see what's going on, definitely look at my Facebook page. It's really been fun to work on and um, and it's got a lot of great content on it. So over the next couple weeks, um, next week and the week after that, we will be welcoming Tom Philpot. Uh, he's a writer for Mother Jones, formerly at Grist. He's uh, really, really knowledgeable about uh, GMO uh, crops and he has been a guest on the show before. He was absolutely brilliant and I'm hoping that he'll be a regular guest from now on. So um, tune in next week for Tom Philpot. We'll be talking about GMOs and in the meantime, have a great week. Thanks for listening. So long. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 